Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. We, now we're recording right now, huh? We just went up. We got it. Good, good. Well, Vivica, welcome. Um, you are the nurse cave woman, I understand, and so I've got a, you know, I got a cave woman gal behind me. As a background. <laughs> well, complaining that I that I that I don't sit up high enough, or I don't know, somebody, you know, you get the funny things. They're like, you know, they they don't like it when I'm like this because this all this, head. and then when I sit up because the chair I'm in, I have to, it leans back and I'm too big and it just this is kind of the way I got this set up. So. <laughs> I know per- personally, I liked the floating head, Sean, the you best. Like the floating head, yeah, that was one of the things that works well. <laughs> Sorry, guys, if you don't like the visual aesthetics, but Vivica, where are you at? Where are you calling from? I'm in Ojai, California. Ojai, oh, oh. I've been. To, I went to a barbecue in Ojai years ago. I used to play rugby for the Santa Barbara Grunions. Oh wow! Years ago, and one of the teammates had a had a little place down in Ojai, and so we went down there and. Uh, God, this is about 1992, so 93, something like that must have been. Mm-hmm. But uh, okay, so you're just so I'm down in uh, I'm down in Orange County, so not too far away. I know Zach used to be a California man, but uh, yep, yeah. Tell us, nice. <clears throat> tell us a little bit about your background, and then we can kind of get into what you do and, and get some questions going. All right. Um, so first, I want to kind of tell you a funny story. You mentioned the Nourish Caveman and the Nourish Cave Woman. So I'm Italian, and like. When I first started my blog, The Nourish Caveman, I was doing, like, come from a Western Price background and was studying nutrition and, you know, had to get some recipes to the patients of the practice where I was working. And everybody asked for recipes. Nobody had good recipes. So I I was like, I'm going to create my own recipes and I am going to create a blog. And then I was also, paleo was really big back then. It was like six, about six years ago. And so there was this whole, I don't know if you guys remember, there was a moment where like Western Price people and paleo people got into it about cod liver oil. And there was this whole thing, that big argument. And I was like, can they see that these two things are not incompatible and that Western Price and paleo can totally get along and like, you know, promote the the same healthy agenda because there is so much overlap but no, they were fighting. And so I was like, I'm going to create a blog that merges the two traditions. And it's like, you know, nourishing traditions and the work of Western Price and then caveman is paleo. But because I'm Italian, I didn't think of using cavewoman because for me, caveman meant everybody. <laughs> so people still ask me to this day, why caveman? You're a woman. Like, and I work a lot with women. So it's just like lost in translation right there. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're you're maybe the the peacemaker as well. If you're merging two conflicting interests, or maybe not conflicting interests, but conflicting uh, uh, ideas, maybe a little bit. But yeah, I think you're right. There's there's plenty of crossover between you know many of these diets, and that's one thing I think Sean and I have learned bringing on a variety of different folks is that sometimes it gets interesting when you have the same end goal, but the pathways to that goal are drastically different or even just a little bit different. That's when you, those things seem to be the things that get spotlighted or the, the conflict for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah. We could go into a whole rabbit hole about dogma right here, but let's not, because <laughs> that's a whole <laughs> other subject. <laughs> but yeah, um, I totally agree. And like, I, I am very much a bridger of things and I like to synthesize Um, it's just part of my nature It's like I use this magic ingredient called common sense and I feel like in the modern day and age common sense is not used enough like you know not valued enough (laughs) and people get really hung up on their ideas so that things should be a certain way yeah I may amen to that with the common sense thing I mean we 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 really I mean if we literally look at what's going on now and just in a greater perspective there there are people out there that telling us that we should eat some processed soy mixed with canola oil shaped in a burger patty telling us that is healthier for us 
than a food that we've been eating naturally as humans for 2.5 to 3 million years. It's just, there is no common sense. I mean, it's all about marketing. It's all about corporate interest and making money. And I mean, the common sense part is gone. I mean, it frustrates the heck out of me to see uh, how easily folks are swayed and brainwashed. And and yes, the common sense part that's a very good point. There is there common sense is not very common anymore, unfortunately. But anyway, let's talk about your what what you know what kind of stuff you do uh, as far as uh, how, what kind of what kind of uh, nutritional lifestyle strategies are you employing? What are you having success success with? What kind of things did you find that didn't work over the years? It's always interesting to get other people's experiences. Yeah, so that will tie back to the first question you asked me that I didn't answer. <laughs> so I am a nutritionist. Um, no fancy titles, just uh, doing nutrition. But I studied nutrition and then worked in a practice with a chiropractor uh, for about four years and continued studying. And after my uh, nutrition certificate, I started doing a lot of courses and seminars. And, you know, I was lucky enough to study with, like, we call them the founding fathers of nutrition, like Weston Price, Dr. Page, Dr. Royal Lee which is a really cool school of thought, not just like their approach to nutrition, but just there was like a moment in history, American history, where all these doctors got together and really started, you know, going back kind of to what we now call ancestral diets, but at the same time, like, you know, applying it in a way to the, the situation at that time, which was when the FDA really started to kick in and the sugar agenda and you know the big ag and all that stuff so there this was like the countercurrent, and they were like kind of the modern witches because all their work got destroyed basically by the government and you know suppressed and some of these doctors have never been heard of because of that so I'm pretty happy with the kind of education that I got because like it really steered me in the right direction and then you know, again, applying common sense for me, it's always, I'm always guided by my intuition of what actually feels right. And the stuff that doesn't make sense. So I'm a very person in reality and the reality of our physiology. Obviously, I would assume you spend quite a bit of time in Italy because you, you still got a, a nice, you know, a nice accent. I did a concert with a gal from, from Italy the other day and I enjoy, I just enjoy the accent. It's fun to listen to. But so let me ask you about growing up in Italy. You know, obviously they have probably a different relationship with food. I mean, obviously everybody knows there's pasta in Italy and, but there's, I mean, I think the entire food environment is much different than when, and, I, and when did you come to the United States and where did you do your training? And it contrasts the difference between the two countries with their philosophy towards diet, if, if, if you're able to. Yeah, very different. And I was, I came when I was like 23 to the States. So it's been a minute, but at the same time I had, you know, my childhood and, you know, my younger years, I grew up in Italy and <clears throat> I was very lucky because like my mom and grandma had a hotel and a restaurant. So I grew up eating really good regional food and traditional food. And I'm old enough that I came right before processed food really boomed. So we still, I still grew up on like really clean traditional food and home cooked and not processed. And we, you know, when the little stores were still there and the cows still went, you know, it was in the mountains, excuse me. So the cows came up for pasture in the summer and, you know, we got fresh milk straight from the hills. um, I mean, the mountain and it was very different. And I was talking to Danny Vega recently about my upbringing and bringing up like growing on liver and fried brains that I remember being kind of staples of my childhood food, you know. And then another thing that I loved was like pickled fish. It's called carpione in Italian, where they take fresh trouts because I was in the mountain and then they'll boil them and then like soak them in vinegar and um, let them pickle for like a couple of days and then you eat them. And that was like, I love that stuff. And, you know, my mom would make me uh, breaded fried brains. And I love that. That was like a treat for me, you know. So talk about the difference between like <laughs> how kids are raised these days in America and what I was eating. So I think I was very lucky because of that. And, you know, I, we didn't have candy like 
the candy version was like one of those gumball machines that had hazelnuts in it. And that was like the treat that I could get as a kid, pretty much. Yeah, it's probably a nice thing. What made you decide to go into nutrition? What, what, what sort of made you make that decision, you know, whenever you did that? It was a combination of things. Um, one is like I started having gallbladder problems very early, about 27. I got my first gallbladder attack. I didn't even know what it was. And then I found this great doctor, a chiropractor that does some nutrition and um, he uses standard process supplements. And he helped me like start to understand a holistic view of the body, was doing muscle testing. So we were, you know, working on my gallbladder issues, but they were not resolving. And he never talked about diet at all. Like just like, oh yeah, avoid this thing or that thing. But, you know, we managed my gallbladder disease, let's call it, never got better. And then I, there was a moment where I was like getting sicker and sicker and started having like, you know, um, a lot of vomiting through the gallbladder attacks. And then I started becoming allergic to my own body juices and I would break out in hives and get all itchy. It was really bad. And the supplements alone would not do it. So I started researching on my own and I started doing my first cleanse that was like raw vegan. Um, and that the first time around kind of helped, you know, because I eliminated a bunch of crap. So of course, you know, your body reacts to whatever improvements you make. And it was like, okay, that's an improvement. But, but then I happened to find this person who was my first mentor and the doctor I worked for, Dr. Deborah Penner. And she was, she wanted me to work for her. She was like, you're really smart and I want you to work for me. And I was like, mm. she's like, study nutrition. <laughs> <laughs> So she kind of forced me into it. And I, you know, I love food. I grew up in a food environment. Food has always been my passion. I love cooking and I was interested in health. So it just kind of slid in naturally. And I was like, okay, let me check this out. And once I started studying, I really found my passion. I, you know, nutrition was like my true vocation. And it, it just kind of occurred naturally at that point. <laughs> Yeah, it's always interesting, you know, it seems like a, a, some of the guests that kind of have a similar background to you or just folks that I've talked to, it, the, their interest in nutrition and in more of a like a lifestyle first approach to medicine is sometimes a kind of a, based on a catalyst of fixing a problem that they had that was seemingly not going away through standard practice of care or through medication or, you know, supplementation, things like that. And then after a while, the frustration just almost evolves into a curiosity of like, well, where can I find the answer to this? If no one, if none of the quote unquote professionals can solve this, where do I find it? And then you kind of take matters into your own hands and through that process, develop the interest. And it's cool to see folks like you kind of pursue that then as a career afterwards and not just kind of uh, keep it to yourself, so to speak. Right. And you know, what's interesting, a lot of my patients that I work with in my practice end up pursuing a health career after like I've had at least five or six people that started studying nutrition after taking my program and you know just like blowing their minds apart open and you know they became really passionate and even all my patients like I'm really big on education and empowerment through knowledge kind of just like you guys <laughs> you know and that's what we need right now we need an alternative to that medical system that's really not doing much good and you know as far as like wellness and prevention and you know degenerative diseases so i'm really big on educating <clears throat> in how to take care of themselves and then they become passionate about it they see the results and it's kind of a natural occurrence at that point i think yeah. Are, are there like specific issues that people seem to kind of come to you with that you're more, you're kind of like a point person on, or is it just a really wide range of things and people are coming to you uh, kind of under the premise of what I mentioned before, because they tried a whole bunch of other stuff and just couldn't figure it out? Well, <clears throat> you know, most people will gravitate towards somebody who has similar issues or have, has resolved similar issues as they have experienced. So a lot of my clients are women, middle-aged women or women with hormonal issues because like, <clears throat> sorry, gallbladder for me was just the beginning Then I had to deal with, you know, um, sex hormone this imbalance and then thyroid and Hashimoto's and I had to work my way through all those things. So I kind of had to become a hormone specialist by, 
you know, default because I had to resolve my problems. And then I started working with those kind of clients more and more and, you know, speak more about it and then attract this kind of person, you know, that, and it, you know, it's very pervasive. I feel nowadays because of the diet and the medical system, there is a whole typology of case that comes to me that is quite similar, you know, and it's like women like past 40 that had have a certain lifestyle and eaten certain foods and done certain things like the whole yo-yo dieting, low-fat dieting, and the effect that that had on their hormones and then the stress of, you know, the crazy pace of life, it all condenses it and funnels it into a certain kind of case, which is, you know, part of what I had to deal with myself. And then, you know, through my experience, I'm able to help them. Do you find that when folks first come to you, it takes a lot of time for them to kind of get used to the protocol and develop, I guess, a new routine when it comes to eating? Or are they like very motivated to just find an answer and they're, they're jumping right in without kind of having a lot of hiccups along the way? That really kind of depends because, you know, what's happening right now as well is that through the extreme popularity of the ketogenic diet, people a lot of people have dabbled in keto already, like versus four years ago when I first started and I was already doing keto and nobody even knew what keto meant. And so there was a lot more people coming from the sad diet and just, you know, low fat. Um, and now a lot of people have dabbled in keto and found me through their, you know, experimentation. And what happens that is they try, they do it on their own, they don't succeed. And then they realize that, they need help or they, you know, they start keto and then the ketogenic diet actually reveals the underlying issues they are carrying. And then they start stalling or, you know, going back into like being symptomatic and then they need help. So there is a variety. And when I start, you know, I try to take things gradually depending on the individual case. But, you know, if somebody comes from standard American diet, it's going to take a minute to you know, evolve them. And like, I know we'll eventually talk about carnivore, <laughs> but, you know, my experiments with carnivore, and I actually have some questions for Sean too. <laughs> awesome. Um, because of the kind of experimentation I've been doing on myself and then in my practice with a certain very specific type of, uh, of individual. Uh, but like, for me, carnivore is kind of an evolution because like I've seen um, the way that it, works best at least in my experience is that evolving people through you know ketogenic and then going into carnivore when needed it's what worked the best versus just like starting them off carnivore from the beginning and then again it's case by case you know yeah and you know, we've talked about that on previous episodes too like when we've had folks who have been uh close to or strict carnivore for a substantial enough amount of time. It's always interesting to hear like where their entrance point to it was. And it does seem like a lot of them have a ketogenic background of some shape or form, or at least were familiar with it, tried it. But then every once in a while, there's someone who just kind of jumped in uh, just cold Turkey, so to speak. And uh, got, got into it that way. But uh, yeah, it's just to see the different pathways. And you know, one thing I saw this morning, Sean, I think it was a, uh, on your Instagram with Rob Wolf was saying that the ketogenic diet now has close to 15% uh, of the population or something like that at it. And I, I hadn't realized that it was even up to that level or not. If I, if I saw that correctly anyway. <laughs> yeah. I saw Rob commenting on that. Yeah. I, I don't, you know, I don't know what we're, you know, I would assume that's Western stats or us stats or something like that. Obviously worldwide, it's going to be probably much lower because most people in the world have no, they don't even care about diet. They're just, they're just trying to eat to survive. Right. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, that's a subset of the population perhaps, but yeah, it's certainly, it has certainly taken off and, and I, and I've, and absolutely I've seen a huge percentage of people that do it eventually transition to a carnivore style diet have, have had a ketogenic sort of experience, you know, before, and you know, many of the people I consult with are coming from keto, but um, there are, you know, quite a few that don't, though, that, that are just, just, you know, trying to jump in. You know, as you probably are aware, Zach, we got some people that were vegans that come on there and go straight to carnivore from a vegan diet, which is about as completely polar opposite as can be. So there's, there's some different physiologic shifts in there. And so some of the things that, you know, I talk to people about just, you know, in general are making sure you're, you're getting enough adequate nutrition, you know, 
uh, you know, your, you know, what, what are your goals? Why are you doing this? The things you have to sort of, you know, I think there's a, there's a reasonable logical stepwise position, a sequence with regard to physiology and then the psychology of that. And then we have to be aware of, you know, things like, you know, entering ketosis for the first time for the people who do that. And then also we've talked about, and we've had people on like Sally Norton and Elliot Overton talking about the potential issues around perhaps oxalate, uh, you know, reduction, rapid reduction of oxalates causing precipitation of those oxalates from the tissues. And then the other thing is fiber, you know, and GI function, because some people do find that tapering off fiber uh, is, is a more sort of tolerable way to do that. So those are, those are some of the, you know, some of the, some of the typical things that I, that I kind of have to, you know, see, you know, see with people. <laughs> Vivica, so what are you doing now these days? Are you, are you, are you employing that? What kind of diet are you on currently? I am on like a kind of modified carnivore um, at this point. So I've been eating about 80 to 90% meat and pretty exclusively red meat, like either <clears throat> beef, bison, venison, elk, like four-legged things. And then about 20% is like lettuce. <laughs> 20% lettuce, oh goodness. I'm so embarrassed. Hopefully not by weight. <laughs> maybe 20% ice cream or something like that, you know, today's goodness. But hey, let me ask you a question, because that's something that a lot of women struggle with. And I think this is such an important topic, because women... Uh, I mean, women are the, are the decision makers from, for, from, for the health and nutrition on the family in most cases, particularly, you know, when it comes to children. And, but often, you know, they're, they're the ones, at least traditionally, maybe that's changing a little bit. But so most women have, you know, they, they kind of fear red meat, red meat in particular, but sometimes meat in general. But how do you, I mean, how does that, did you adopt that and, and how does it improved or, or not improved your health? Um, I mean, because there's so many people that have, you know, so many women that have problems with uh, hormone issues, uh, you know, anemia in many cases, you know, they have uh, thyroid issues, things like that. Talk to me about your, your sort of rationale for adopting a red meat style diet, because that, that is something that a lot of women are really, really terrified of. Yeah, I know. And it's, it's an ongoing discussion with my clients as well that, you know, this kind of phobia of red meat and this whole you know, miseducation about red meat being bad in all these different ways. For me, it's been, it started with a very personal need of like, what makes me feel good? And what does my body need? And I'm pretty in tune with my body. And like, I've, you know, experimented with my diet as coming through this nutrition, high nutrient dense background, first of all which has always been a staple. So <clears throat> for me, it's always been a focus on like eating a lot of organ meats and eating nose to tail, really important. And I also lived on a homestead for seven years. We raised our own animals, some of them, <clears throat> and I was friends with all the farmers and I got, you know, my meats from all the farmers. So I got access to a lot of great organs and, you know, brains and things like that. Um, so that was already in place and it kind of goes back again to my Italian roots and the way I grew up, but just seeing the way that I feel best. And honestly, for me, as I'm going through menopause right now, so I'm going from perimenopause into menopause and it's like navigating the shift. And this is also something that I want to ask your opinion on Sean about women hormones and carnivore, because I, I have certain cases that I've been working with that are kind of like my case studies because I don't believe a lot in medical research case studies when those are sometimes just not there. And, you know, my case study population is like perimenopausal women doing carnivore with starting with hormonal imbalances and how do carnivore and the hormonal part balance together, which is kind of your question. So for me particularly, I found that meat keeps me sane and as you know my hormones fluctuate and the stress of my life has been pretty crazy and all kinds of changes and things are coming at me all the time if i don't eat meat i lose my sanity so meat is what grounds me into my body and at an energ energetic level because i am also an energy sensitive person which is maybe something that you know, on your podcast you don't talk about a lot it's a different side of things but 
it keeps me sane. It keeps me grounded. It, and like my body functions the best. Like the way I feel when I eat the right way for me, which is like high fat meats and organs and, you know, and then, but my gut as well needs some of the roughage still. I try to be whole carnivore. I did two months experiment last year where I tried to just do carnivore and I felt good, but I guess either I didn't fully adapt, my gut was not very happy. And so when I reintroduce like some fermented foods and some greens, which is what I eat now on the side of my meat, I feel great. And my gut works great. And, you know, it's just like about like that 20% is not in, in excess. And I'll treat myself to some berries sometimes, you know, here and there. But this is really the point where I feel like everything works the best and yeah. energy wise. And everything. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think obviously if, if that's working the best, then I, I don't know that I would recommend you change much. I mean, I think there are certain people where a more strict carnivore diet just works better for them for various reasons. But I mean, when it comes to, you know, hormone synthesis, you know, obviously, you know, I mean, we make our own cholesterol, but we still need cholesterol to produce a lot of the sex hormone or all the sex hormones essentially. I mean, they're all based on, on a cholesterol, you know, backbone. And then they just, you know, and then the body uses that to convert those things. And so I do think taking in adequate uh, fat in the diet and, and including cholesterol um, is, is, is very important for making sure that there is no if issues with, uh, you know, forming those hormones to the level that it's gonna need, that's, that you're gonna need. And also I think uh, we look at, you know, the hormones will all have a interplay. You know, it's not that they're, they act in isolation. So it's not to say that you know, your thyroid hormone is going to have an effect on the, 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 the sort of expression of, you know, estrogen or progesterone or testosterone or insulin and, and vice versa. And so those things all have to come in balance. And one of the things we do see, I mean, just in general, is a problem with insulin is just is ubiquitous, you know, particularly because, because of what our diet does to us, particularly a highly refined carbohydrate diet, add in the seed oils, add in the excess amounts of sugar, and we probably have a hormonal disaster in not just sex hormones, but all hormones. And so they have a role. And I think ironing those things out, the system kind of comes back into balance. And, you know, I mean, it's, there's, I think diet is such a huge perturbation to the entire endocrine system that, you know, it, it makes it very difficult for you to, you, you to sort of sort of function on sex hormones for say, if you've got this huge dietary problem that's just messing everything up. And so I think when you come back to a, what I think is a more human appropriate diet, and I do think that includes lots of, lots of meat, most people fatty meat, and then, you know, and then those other things, you know, the berries, a little bit of green, greens and roughage and stuff like that, probably for some people is, is completely fine. I kind of, I kind of treat that stuff as, um, you know, flavor enhancement, you know, entertainment, you know, something like that. And then I just make sure that, that they realize that meat is the actual nutrition. That's where you're getting your food from. That's yeah. where you're getting your structural material. Because, you know, if I'm building a, if I'm going to build a car and, you know, you're going to give me, and, you know, if I say if I want to build a, a nice Mercedes Benz and you give me, uh, you know, you know, 25, um, let me try to use an analogy there that a little makes sense. You know, I, I, you know I, I get 25 Chevrolets and I'll line them up and you may find that you have enough. Well, let me, let me make this a different analogy. If I'm going to build a car and you got 25, you know, maybe 100 computers that, that I can scrounge enough metal from and I can plastic and I can, I, can, I can take those parts and make a car out of it, you know, I can do that. If, if you give me another car, the exact same, or nearly the exact same car, you know, maybe a, you know, a Mercedes C-Class versus a Mercedes S-Class, I can probably make one or two of those and get what I need to make the Mercedes. And that's the difference between plant food and animal food, really. I mean, you've got plants where you've got some, some amino acids, but they're not in the right ratios. You've got to maybe you've got to eat three times as much plants to get enough lysine as you would with, you know, with, with just animal products. Because remember, we're building an animal. We're building animal tissue. And that's the most efficient way to do that. And I know that, you know, cows can, sure, cows can make meat, but they spend 16 hours a day uh, eating, you know, constantly in their 55-gallon stomach. I mean, they have 55 gallons of food capacity in their stomach to make that tissue. And humans just don't have the hardware to do that, or at least not very efficiently. And so uh, that's why it's so, easy, so much easier to, to make things work when you're getting, you know, basically the right nutrition. So I think that's a kind of a roundabout way of answering that question. 
I totally agree with you. And <clears throat> I think in a way, the way I'm eating right now is that I'm feeding my body with the meat, the animal protein, and I'm feeding the gut bacteria with the fermented foods. And see, this is where I personally, in my practice, saw a difference between the people that I think need to go 100% strict carnivore versus the people that are doing this kind of more modified diet or a little bit more open diet like I'm doing. I see a difference in their microbiome. And there are people who are completely intolerant to fiber and they can just not tolerate. Their gut is so damaged and it's just, they come to me in such a bad shape that they can't even absorb anything from the plant foods. And so those for me are the people that I will transition to carnivore much faster even. And I know that eventually, you know, once we break down the mental resistance <laughs> to it, that's where they should go. And I can see it right away or there are specific conditions. And for me, the gut, the microbiome is what determines like what really like you should be ideally eating, which could be just 100% meat or maybe not. There is a little bit of other stuff in there that keeps feeding the um, fermentative flora in your gut and keep going with that as well. Now for a word from our sponsors. What are you doing with that X3 bar? What's your experience been so far? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been great so far. I've been using it quite a bit at home. It's saved me a couple trips to the gym. I've been mostly doing deadlifts with it and I've actually brought it on a couple trips with me too because it's pretty easy to throw in, uh, into a rolling duffel and kind of bring with you on the road. Yeah, I mean, I found particularly the deadlift, um, you know, I've been a pretty decent deadlifter and, you know, I pulled over 700 pounds and I know when I use this big orange band, it, uh, it's pretty tough. It, it actually, for a band workout, it definitely simulates the heavy lifting. I think you're right. It's uh, very nicely suited for travel for sure. It's a good uh, certainly accessory exercise for many people, and I think a lot of people can use it as their primary uh, training tool depending upon what their goals are. But I think the key I've found is you've got to use it as designed, and that includes uh, really pushing to failure. And when you get there, you really know it. It definitely gets your heart rate up, even though even things like biceps curl, I find my heart rate jacked up after doing that. So I think I've been pretty impressed with the product overall uh, in certain situations for sure. Awesome. And uh, Dr. Jakish has a uh, poster that comes with it that gives you a kind of a breakdown of kind of the moves and different lifts that he addresses with it too. Head over to x3bar.com for products, videos, and training programs. Now back to the show. Yeah, I think the, you know, the gut microbiome is a fascinating topic. It's one that we have just, we're really in the infancy of understanding this. And so I don't know that we can make any proclamations about what is an ideal microbiome? I do, and it's clearly responsive to diet. There's no doubt about it, and, and, and very rapidly, in fact. I mean, you know, eating a diet, different diet over a matter of a day or two can have a dramatic impact on your microbiome, what, what grows and what does it. And so I do think that, uh, you know, there is, I think there's a range of healthy microbiomes, and I think, you know, a healthy person in general will have a healthy microbiome. I think that's kind of a more... Um, in my view, more realistic way to think about that. I know there's people that want to try to put everybody, you know, put all the round pegs in the square hole and say, you've got to have this particular microbiome to be healthy. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's anywhere near close to being proven. Um, certainly there are, um, you know, bacteria that are detrimental to our health and there are ones that are probably less so, or perhaps even healthful, helpful. And, you know, again, I've, I've seen people on a diet that are strict carnivores. And I know one of the, one of the uh, uh, metrics that people use is something called alpha diversity. And the people on a carnivore diet show excellent alpha diversity. And so even, even in absence of some of these foods. But I do, you know, again, if I were to say, you know, as far as, you know, what kind of vegetation would be maybe less detrimental and perhaps potentially, I do agree that the fermented stuff, might be a little easier on the gut because, you know, again, the fermentation in the gut is not comfortable. I mean, this is, this is the problem. This is why digestion hurts for so many people because we have this massive fermentation producing all this excess gas, causing bloating, causing discomfort, cramping, and pain. And that is really not how digestion should work. I mean, you think about it just from a, again, we go back to your very first statement about common sense. Why would a normal human physiologic process cause us pain? It doesn't make any sense at all. 
and therefore you have to say that maybe there's the wrong input there. I mean, if, if I were to t say every time you took a breath, you had a little bit of pain, you would, you would quickly think I'm crazy. I mean, that doesn't make sense. Or if I said every time you walked, your knee would hurt, and you would say, well, that doesn't make sense either. There's something wrong here. And I think the same thing applies to digestion. We should not have any discomfort or pain. And I see a lot of people when they're eating uh, a higher fiber diet, you know, lots, you know, they're eating all their cruciferous vegetables and leafy greens because everybody tells them that's the greatest thing in the world, world to eat. And yet they're always, you know, particularly women, because they're, they're so, women are kind of been socially engineered to eat salads and pretend they like it and sit there and smile. And then, you know, then they go home and they're bloated and, and uncomfortable and they, and they're starving and then they got to sneak, you know, sneak a, a tub of Ben and Jerry's at night when no one's looking. I mean, that, that is reality. <laughs> That I, that I that you know that's out there but i mean I, I i you know i think the gut microbiome stuff i i i don't i hate to see us put, put the cart cart before the horse and and sort of uh you know you know i, I think that has a role but I, I don't think we can say we have to let the microbiome drive our our our, our existence i think we have to understand that it, may, it has an effect and certainly does and everything has an effect i mean every our muscles have an effect on our brain our fat cells have an, have an effect on our circulatory system all of this you know interacts with itself so i i know it's it's an exciting topic and people think it's a latest and greatest but i i just say step back let's look at the big picture let's look at the input let's look at the outputs let's look at the metrics we we think matter because people will get obsessed about ketone levels they'll get obsessed about heart rate variability now they're obsessed about their microbiome for them and, I, and at the end of the day maybe it's not that important maybe maybe being healthy and thriving and smiling and enjoying life and, you know, having a sex drive and, and being physically active and, you know, just, you know, that may be the important thing we're looking for. Anyway, philosophy. I yeah. have a little theory. Sorry, Zach. I kind no, of want to share with you guys. <laughs> That's like my personal theory of evolution. <laughs> but I think that there is, yeah, it's like Vivica's own um, scientific discoveries. But I, I feel that adaptation as a very important part here. And, uh, you know, we talk a lot about ancestral diets. And, you know, if I think back to, like, what we came from evolutionarily and, like, what we were adapted to as, like, for example, hunter-gatherers. And, you know, I listened to some of your old podcasts where you were talking about that and because I was really curious to learn more information. What did we really eat as hunter-gatherers? And there is a difference in that too. Like if as older you go back into our evolution, you know, and we come from a common gene pool that then split up, like, I mean, there are all these theories, but depending, we evolved in slightly different ways depending where we are. But the thing is our gut has the ability to adapt to our environment. And what I found is that we were able to adapt to the foods of hunter-gatherers. And then we did okay up to a certain point and, you know, we thrived evidently. Then agriculture's, agriculture came in and it just took this like 90 degree turn on like the foods and we had, our gut kind of had to adapt again to this new input of like carbohydrates, like high carb and, you know, a very different diet than the hunter-gatherers. So but we were able to adapt at a certain level. Humans survived, right? There was many cultures, there are agricultural cultures, maybe a little undernourished, yes, we can admit to that. But they still survived, you know, they managed. In ideal, maybe not, but we adapted. But then there came a turning point with the Industrial Revolution and the advent of this all in these industrial foods where food kind of became, I call it plastic in just one quick word, you know, it's just not natural anymore. And it's become so processed and so artificial that I feel like our guts have lost the ability to adapt to the food that we put in it. <clears throat> and this is when I feel that people come with such damaged organism from the malnourishment and the chemicals and the toxins. And so they totally like the whole body lost the ability to adapt to the diet at this point. And so we need to revert back, you know, and the more damage, I feel like we need to revert back further and further to our original ancestral diet to be able to heal the maladaptation of these like modern diets and, and lifestyles that we have. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't argue, you know, at all about the general premise with that. I mean, certainly, I mean, it's pretty clear that, you know, we are eating a very different diet. I mean, we can argue about what we may have eaten, you know, 50,000 or 1,000, a million and a half years ago. We clearly weren't eating what we're eating today. I mean, we clearly weren't eating Cheetos and, and Twinkies and drinking soda pops. And, you know, that, that just has never been part of the human diet until the last, you know, 100 years or so. And so that is something that we have not you know, experienced in any, you know, significant way to, you know, with, with, or had enough time to, to adapt to that. Now, yeah, absolutely. I do think regionally some people have adapted better. I mean, we, you know, uh, lactose intolerance is one of the classic examples. You know, we see some people that have adapted better to dairy or particularly lactose than, than others. And, and, you know, the same thing can be said for grains and, you know, various other foods. And so we do see that. And, you know, how long that takes is, is it, you know, a few few generations or a few thousand years. I mean, I, that's that's really probably in my view debatable. Um, I do agree that you know we probably are seeing a number of uh, maladaptive issues. You know, we aren't adapted to our diet, and so we're seeing you know issues revolving around the gut. You know, and probably many other places as well. And you know, I, like I said, are you know, and again, I I don't know that anybody's done studies on this, but I would suspect that our intestinal uh, anatomy and general proportions have not changed significantly in the last 10,000 years, you know, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe 50,000 or 100,000 years ago, there's a slight difference, but it's not like the radical change that occurred from, uh, you know, as we compare ourselves to other primates, which many people will, con will concede that there was a common uh, ancestor between those. And we certainly have a much, uh, you know, much different gut uh, makeup than, a, than, a, than than say a chimpanzee, where where we have a much larger, uh, small intestine, much smaller colon, much less fermentative capacity, much more acidic stomach, uh, which was almost certainly driven by the fact that we were getting a much more calorie rich diet in in the, in the form of you know likely likely meat and then ultimately fatty meat. And so, um, yeah, I, I do think I think some of the modern problems, and and I, I I'm the first one to say that I don't think humans were exclusive carnivores or at least uh, not through the majority of their evolution. I think there were periods of time where many people were mostly carnivorous or even exclusively carnivorous, depending on their location and the time and the climate. You know, certainly Ice Age Europe, you're not going to be eating mangoes and coconuts. I mean, this is not going to be possible. But uh, I think that, uh, you know, I think some of the problems with the modern food is it, it has damaged our, our system so badly that even some of these other foods that would have been otherwise innocuous to someone 50,000 years ago are now causing issues. And we talk about leaky gut, gut permeability. Well, some degree of leaky gut is, is normal physiology. I mean, our gut is not an airtight or watertight barrier, you know, even in the best of circumstances. There is some degree of permissibility that's occurring. It's just right now we probably see people with, uh, you know, incredibly, you know, it's, it's, it's gone into overdrive. So everything kind of gets through. And so maybe these berries that, you know, would have, I would have definitely, I mean, I would have eaten them. If I was a caveman 100,000 years ago, I mean, I would have killed mammoths because they're easy to eat. But if I was walking down the road and there's some berries, sure as heck, if they tasted good and were a little sweet, I would have eaten them. I mean, you know, and they wouldn't have been available that often. But um, so I think those things, uh, you know, again, we've hybridized the fruit and changed it so much. And now it's got such a high sugar content. It's, it's arguably very different. But I think that, you know, I think our, I think there's a number of things going on that maybe it's an epigenetic phenomenon. Maybe it's uh uh, severely compromised, you know, damaged, you know, permeable gut, and and then all that overlaid makes some of these other foods that we should be able to tolerate not tolerable for many people. Right. <clears throat> yeah, I totally agree with that. I think too, Vivica, what you said earlier when you were describing kind of your nutritional approach currently, and then some of your clients and how you kind of determine whether they are more or less strict on the carnivory carnivorous diet or if they're more of a kind of an animal based lifestyle with uh, some supplementation in there of like uh, some fermented foods and things like that is when we had, we've had a couple of folks from the paleo medicina group on the show, uh, Jabba tooth and uh, uh, Jophia Clemens. And, and uh, I remember when I asked uh, Jophia about that and she said that essentially when they, I mean, they're working with, I think mostly folks that have you know, pretty compromised gut permeability. Um, so it's maybe, kind of a fringe, maybe not a fringe group, but kind of further along to the edge of the, the spectrum. And uh, she said, when they look at that, like when they go exclusive, that permeability clear cleans up a little quicker 
but they're also trying to be a little more understanding to a degree with folks and meeting them kind of part way. So they'll, she said, they'll have like a vegetable allowance where, you know, some folks they're going to just feel better or whether it's physical or psychological, it's going to keep them on track to have a little bit of vegetable in there. And uh, her message was kind of that it, it'll depend, like you said, like it, it might depend on the level of damage and then the, the urgency of how quickly they want to try to like heal the issue versus kind of like a longer approach or a let's get this fixed as quickly as humanly possible. And um, it was kind of interesting to hear their approach. Yeah, I love their approach. I'm actually very familiar with them. And I interviewed um, <clears throat> Dr. Clements for my interview series last year. And funny enough, one of my clients, ex-clients, Natalie, she became carnivore. And that's, I started my carnivore experiment with her because like she was under my care mm -hmm. and she suddenly is like, I'm going to be carnivore. And I'm like, wait, I haven't tried carnivore. I can't like let you do carnivore without me trying it on first. Cause like, <clears throat> excuse me, I've been talking a lot. That's not what I do. You know, I can't be confident that you can do carnivore under my care. So we both started carnivore together and then she really became passionate about it and went to study with them. And now she works for Paleo Medicina and um, is doing great. I love their approach. I think there is a great value to it, especially in like the nutrients density and like really, you know, including the organ meats, including the raw meats, the good fats. Um, I feel like sometimes though, when I interviewed her, I had a feeling that they're like, she kind of say that going carnivore in the PKD style was like the solution for almost every issue. And what I found in my practice is that unfortunately is not the case because like that's what I wanted to talk about with Sean as well. I had a few cases where <clears throat> it's a very specific case. So perimenopausal woman um, going coming already through, you know, into my care with unbalanced, very unbalanced hormones and taking them through a whole process of like keto adaptation, detoxing, and then eventually transitioning to full carnivore where their hormonal issues got better up to a point. And then being carnivore for about six, seven, eight months. And what happened in, I have three case studies that I'm working with right now. There are my little, you know, um, things that I'm like learning from is that there was progress up to a certain point with the hormones and then everything else did great. You know, the gut did great on carnivore energy did great and other body function, like, you know, labs look great, but they then started becoming symptomatic again, some of them. Some of them continued on the improvement line and some of them didn't and kind of regressed. And then I had to reintroduce like herbal supplements because I work with herbs a lot for hormone regulation. And when I did like strict carnivore with herbal supplements, then suddenly things just got to that golden point again. So it, for me, it was like an interesting question that I don't, definitely don't have enough research or never saw any research on such a specific scenario to know why does person A like react this way, that why does person B and like, you know, why does a person need more supplementation still and another person can just be okay with carnivore? So that's what I've been kind of mulling over and looking at, um, in my practice because like, you know, and these are all people that had severe gut issues that got completely resolved with carnivore and, you know, and, but the hormones, they kind of have a life of their own, their own almost, you know, so they like, we fix the gut, the gut is doing great consistently for months. And then the hormones like through perimenopause and that's like a highly volatile period where like everything is shifting. And of course, you know, we want to like, I feel like a carnivore diet really supports adrenal function and all the nutrients and the fat that we need for the hormones so that we don't get into like pregnenolone steel and, you know, such scenarios where like we don't have enough raw material, even our cortisol is hijacking my hormonal cascades. And the carnivore really supports that function, 
but at the same time there comes a point where like so why it doesn't work anymore and i haven't quite got to the answer of that yeah i mean and i would i would agree that that's probably a very challenging scenario i mean you know you have to figure out you know what's this person's history you know what what you know where were they at long term how much damage do they do i mean some people have damaged themselves to a point where you know it's it's pretty darn you know i mean it, there's there's such thing as permanent you know it doesn't regrow limbs and it doesn't uh you know, there's things it's, it's not going to do. And so if you've got something that's completely damaged beyond repair, I mean, sometimes you can't do it. Now, having said that, um, you know, with with the symptoms, you have to say, what what exactly are the symptoms? I, I think that, you know, a lot of people will view plants as medications, and I think that's a fair way to do that. And so if somebody does get some some benefit from using an herbal supplement or something like that, I don't think there's any reason to, to, to dissuade somebody from doing it. If there's a true benefit, now you have to you have to be very objective about saying something's benefit versus placebo effects. And, you know, I, I you know, again, and I would agree that the, per, the perimenopausal woman is a very complex thing because, you know, you are changing. You don't know what the new normal is going to be because, you know, you know, you, you literally, you've never experienced it before and you've changed your, your body completely. And so we don't know what the new normal and what the new baseline is. And so once you stop ovulating, and, you know, you've got a whole new sort of hormone system. I mean, it, it really, the diet can make And I've seen a lot of women who've gone through menopause on either a low-carb ketogenic or particularly a carnivore diet that say it's very manageable. It's greatly removed, improved their symptoms. And so we see that. But there is going to be a new baseline established, particularly in that group. And so we just got to figure out what that's going to be. And then, you know, then there are a lot of things that are outside of diet that, that do have an impact, you know sleep quality, stress, stress, exercise. Uh, you know, I think all women should be doing resistance training. I mean, I think there's a lot of things out there that, you know, go into that package. And so diet is not going to be, while diet is probably, in my view, arguably the most important issue, it's not the only issue. So I think you have to start plugging in those other things. And there's, you know, a lot of other modalities out there where people are using, you know, cold and heat and, and light therapy. And so there's, there's all these things that kind of you you've got to plug into the pieces but i think you know again the point of getting good nutrition and make sure your nutritional needs are met by supplying essential fats and essential amino acids and then the, the vitamins and minerals which we need are going to get you the, probably 90 percent of the nutritional you know the 90 percent of the battle and, and probably arguably most of the nutritional battle and then it's and then it's dealing with these other things and so i sometimes have to look outside diet itself to say what else can we do yeah, I totally agree. And that's why I work like in a program mostly with my clients because it helps me to put a structure around all these different aspects of lifestyle that we need to look at. And for me, toxicity is also a big part of it because like people come with like extremely toxic and then the toxins are stored in the organs, in the fat, you know, and it's a long process to get in them out safely. So, you know, people don't understand that the detox is not just two weeks on juices. And they also, a lot of times, don't understand how important protein and amino acids it is actually for to be able to detox. When I put people, I tell people that meat detoxes you, they look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> I was talking to a kind of vegan fruitarian recently, and he does this kind of detoxes, and it's like you know, you wouldn't get it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I will say that, you know, when anybody talks about detoxes and cleanses and, you know, all this stuff, it, it does conjure up images of kind of craziness and insanity. But you are correct that, you know, our, our tissues do store, you know, garbage that we've, you know, we've accumulated and, and a lot of it's in the fat. And we know, we know the turnover for that stuff is very, very slow, typically. I mean, stuff accumulates in our fat, it may take you know, I think I think one of the, there's a good study out there on on you know things like oxidized uh, seed oils and those things can take up residence and they may spend you know a a year to, to several years before you can kind of finally you know by not eating them. I think the detoxification is basically don't take the toxins in. You know that that is that is probably the more important. Now some of them you can't avoid. I mean, there's air pollution. There's stuff in the water. There's stuff everywhere that you're going to continue to be exposed to, and, and that's kind of a uh, you know, a continued challenge. And so I think, you know, again, being on, being on a, as good as you can, a lifestyle nutritional plan, that's going to give us ability to do that. Cause our, our bodies are designed to deal with that. Even cavemen had toxins they had to deal with. I mean, it's not like, 
you know, we, you know, there's no capacity to deal with toxin. We have a very robust uh, antioxidant system that we make ourselves. We don't need to supplement antioxidants. Our bodies make that very well. We've got all kinds of systems to deal with antioxidants and, and detoxification pathways, particularly in the liver. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I would agree that, uh, you know, sometimes uh, it can take a, a pretty long time for, for you to sort of see the effects. And that's why a lot of people that I know that have done a carnivore diet often say they, they continued to receive benefits, you know, for many years into the process, two, three, four years sometimes. And so that may just be that you're finally free of these, you know, things that, that you, that came with the crappy diet. Yeah, totally. And patience is the secret ingredient. Sometimes people want such quick fixes, you know, and like, sometimes that's what I, I feel sad about that they go to keto because they want a quick fix. They go to carnivore because they want a quick fix and they don't even understand like all the implications, like you say. And for me, detoxification is definitely one of the big elements of health and, you know, that clean eating, which for me definitely is based on animal protein and personally red meat. It is part of keeping clean, keeping my body clean. And it will give me all the elements that my body needs to finish those detoxing processes in the liver, especially, you know, phase two detox of the liver. It has a very specific formula that I don't think when we are not able to assimilate nutrients, especially from plants, and we're back to the gut conversation, you know, and not being able to process that plant material into the nutrients we need, then phase two of the liver goes. And that's one of the problems I see with women with hormonal issues is that they don't have the ability to detoxify the hormones fast enough. And so the liver gets congested and backed up and, you know, like phase two doesn't finish. We have this whole like recirculation of toxins and it gets pretty ugly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think that stuff is, is pretty challenging to assess. Um, you know, I, I don't know how, how we, can, we can really accurately assess those types of things other than kind of going at clinic, clinically and, and saying that, you know, I mean, sure, doing liver biopsies and stuff like that, which most people are not going to sign up for. But I mean, really, I mean, a lot of this stuff is still black box stuff. And so we've got to look at the input and then look at the output at the end of the day. Let me ask you, what, um, what successes are you having? Uh, with uh, with people adopting a more sort of meat based diet, you know what are, are any of the women surprised, or have you seen anything that's been surprising to you? Not surprising to me, surprising to them maybe. <laughs> but um, I have had really good results when the cases that I felt that really needed to go full strict carnival, just meat and water. Um, and I know that that was the only option for them to really resolve the issues. I get a lot of really complex cases. It seems like nobody wants to do nutrition until they're desperate. Like they'll go the medical route, they'll go the everything route. And then somehow when like they get turned down by everybody else and they're desperate, they find me. And I, you know, I don't really turn people down that are willing to do the work that it takes for healing. So and I do my best, you know, as I say, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist, I'm just a nutritionist, but I use common sense and that goes a long way. <laughs> and these cases, like I've had a few cases where, you know, they've, um, like there was extreme toxicity in the body, first of all, and like a lot of like, I hate to say the word, but you know, when people go through the medical system and they kind of are, turned over and over and over, organs removed and surgeries and three, four, five, six medications. And then they are kind of like, oh, sorry, I can't help you anymore. Like, you know, sent home to like deal with themselves. So I, I get quite a few of those cases. And then it's like a whole process of like cleaning them up and, you know, um, getting them strong again. And like, I've seen people, um, there is a specific case of a woman that was like over 200 and 
30 pounds, I think we started on an absolute inability to lose weight and very toxic physiology. I could see by her body and like where she was retaining toxins and not able like, you know, lymph not flowing and liver congestion, hormones all over the place. And for her, like just losing the weight was a symptom of health because like that's what I could see the toxicity right there. And like four months into carnivore, she's now like lost like 50 pounds and like not just that, but like the symptoms are going, you know, the crazy hormonal, like crazy periods, hemorrhages and cramps and all those symptoms are going. The PMS craziness is going. So just overall betterment. And like another case is a woman that's been about eight months on carnivore right now. And she came after having seen all these specialists and, you know, doctors like candida specialists and did candida cleanses. She had systemic candida really bad. Nobody had even thought about looking for heavy metals in her body. She had severe mercury toxicity. So we had to do a long period of like trying to gently detox out the metals and then after working together for about six months i told her that i really wanted her to do carnivore and she's probably 80 percent strict she's more like me like i don't think she's gone really like 100 percent. i have a couple of cases that i know they're strict but this one maybe not so strict but she was also experiencing extreme hormonal symptoms and, you know, bad periods, hemorrhages and, you know, clots and all that. So very slowly, everything has improved. The candida is finally gone. You know, she was itchy on her body constantly, like everything would make her itchy. She was really high uh, histamine sensitive as well. But eating the right way, she can do carnivore and not have any issues with the histamine. And all her symptoms are getting better slowly, but surely. And this is within the span of about a year, a year and a half. So it does take time. Um, another case as well, like strict, pretty much just hormonal and gut. And she's one of the ones that I know she's very strict, um, but like constipation. And this is something people don't get. It's like chronic lifelong constipation resolved by being carnivore. And it blows people's minds, like, how oh, if I don't eat any fiber, I'm going to actually start going to the bathroom. Well, guess what? That's what happens for your gut. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's actually a nice paper about that exact same thing. And we've had uh, Dr. Paul Mason on to discuss that in the past. And yeah, that was a study I think came out of, I think it was a Korean literature. I'm not sure. But yeah, they, they showed the exact same thing. I mean, people with chronic constipation respond the best to a zero fiber diet. And so that's, that's pretty well. I mean, I agree. I mean, the medical system, as we know it, does break a lot of people. And I've seen it, you know, and, 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 and ashamedly contribute to some of that system where you just kind of move one person on to the next because they're too challenging to deal with. They got too many damn problems and you only got 15 minutes to see them. And they're like, go see this, go see this guy or you'll just, you know, you just, you know, it's, it's, it's sad to see because these people end up on 15, 20 different medications. They have allergy that probably wasn't necessary and, may, and probably only helped a little bit or temporarily or didn't do anything. They lose organs, they lose body parts. And all of that, I wouldn't say all of it, but a majority of that should have been avoided and could have been avoidable had we started with nutrition, lifestyle, diet, exercise, you know, stress management from the beginning. You know, if we get these people when they're in their 20s, when they're, you know, we see people in their late teens and 20s they're already starting on this downward spiral of chronic disease and mad poor health. If we catch these people early and get them, you know, going on the right way rather than, you know, just plugging them into the system to the chronic disease system, you know, which is basically a disease management system. I mean, these, they're, they're basically doomed if they stay there. And so uh, that is something that, that hopefully more and more physicians, it's nice to see people like you, you know, as a new nutritionist, recognizing that, well, I mean, certainly the power of food, but being able to recognize results when they happen and not being so uh, sort of, you know, beholden to the dogma, which is clearly driven by conflict of interest. I mean, I, I just, I just think that's clear as day that there's conflicts of interest that make us, you know, even these big medical organizations that, that take millions and millions of dollars from big pharma or food manufacturers. And I mean, it's just, 
I mean, the patients in the middle are really the ones that are, they're being hurt and it's, it's sad to see, but thank you Vivica for coming on. It's been a wonderful conversation. Um, hopefully I'll get to see you in person sometime, you know, I'm, obviously I'm in California and, uh, yeah, not too far. I think Ohio is about, I don't know, that's about what, 50 miles north of LA or something like that. If I'm not mistaken. It's about an, an hour and a half. Yeah. Something. Yeah. About, yeah. Something like that. So I'm about to come visit and make you some ribeyes. <laughs> I'd, love, I'd love to. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. Go out there and have a little barbecue or something like that. But anyway, Zach, anything else we need to discuss? I think that's it. Thank you so much for, for coming on the, on the show. I think it will be an interesting one for our listeners. No doubt. Did you have, um, any spots you wanted to share that our listeners can find you on like social media or websites or anything like that or books or anything? Yeah, I have, I do have a book. It's called the Keto Paleo Kitchen and it's kind of like pre-carnivore. It's more like strictly Keto Paleo Nutrient Dance, but, and there is probably some stuff that I outgrew, but I think for people that are in the process of keto, it's probably a really good book because it does focus on very clean. Uh, it's dairy free and it's like, you know, nutrient dense based foods and pretty yummy recipes. So the keto pillow kitchen is the book. And then I'm the nourish caveman <laughs> on um, nourishcaveman.com. It's my website. And then of course I'm on Facebook, Instagram, even though I have a high resistance to Instagram, I'm there. <laughs> And, um, oh, yeah, YouTube channel as well. Awesome. And what's your Instagram and Twitter handles? Uh, the Nourish Caveman. Okay, cool. So that's kind of the, the label for all of it then. So it'll be easy to find. But I'll, I'll link to all of those in the show notes too. So, folks, if you're interested in checking out anything in those departments, there will be links there for you. But uh, thanks again for coming on the show and uh, have a good rest of the day. Thank you so much, guys. It was a pleasure. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.